0: You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. Today's sermon is from our Good Shepherd Sermon Series out of the Old Testament text in Ezekiel 34. The pattern of God's people showcases an unwillingness to learn from previous generations. God's people are in a constant battle for where they put their trust and affections. Their leaders, too, with their shepherding responsibilities, have swung from gross negligence to overbearing brutality. How can we learn from the past and truly turn back to God? What can break this cycle? Listen in to how God himself becomes our shepherd. He promises to seek, find, bring back, bind and strengthen, and bring us to good pasture. Let us only learn and return. Please visit our website at roanokevalleychurch.org and our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Church for more resources, sermons, and links to help you be a part of what God is doing in the Roanoke Valley. And now, enjoy today's sermon. church great to be together family and uh, welcome again to the Roanoke Valley Church today as we did last Sunday uh, this lesson will lead us into a time of communion so if you need to get a uh, little uh, communion pack of cup uh, of bread and juice you can see one of our ushers or raise your hand and we'll make sure we get one of those to you uh, we are going to be in Ezekiel chapter 34 we're continuing our, our fall series for a few more weeks here uh through november and the first week of december on the good shepherd and looking at some old testament and new testament texts alike highlighting the good shepherd so we're going to be in ezekiel uh 34. it's a long chapter but we'll break it up as we go um but uh, by way of introduction i do want to mention uh that i've always loved fire anybody yeah loved fire um Growing up, I would enjoy my dad, uh, enjoy helping my dad gather kindling uh, and bring wood up to our wood stove. Uh, I got got the job at the ripe old age of uh, five of being the newspaper, the newspaper roller. Uh, my dad was the guy that put the fire or put the wood in the fire and lit it, but my first job was rolling the newspaper. So my brother and I would roll the newspaper and stuff it in just the right places where he directed, uh, not too much newspaper. Not too little. You had to have the right uh, combination there. But I was like, super, super excited uh, when the day came that I actually got to light the paper on fire. Uh, many, many uh, winters had gone by where I was just the stuffer. Uh, but when I got the lighter, everything changed. Uh, light the corner of the paper. All different kinds. You had to light it and then get to the next corner before it erupted and burned your hand or singed you. I didn't have any hair on my hands at that point in my life, but. Uh, singe hair, or, uh, you know, it just, it, it was a big deal to be, the, uh, to be the paper lighter. And I remember as it uh, would quickly catch and eventually engulf the kindling, and then my dad would throw the logs in the fire, and I, I just loved that, loved fire. As I grew, uh, my love for fire grew as well. <laughs> and I would occasionally sneak matches uh, out of the house and uh, i'd go behind uh, behind our neighbor's house who had some pine trees and we would bundle up a little small pile of pine needles and drop a match and quickly it would burst into flames and my friends would collectively kind of like oh oh, oh," and we start stomping it out we always started small but as we got more comfortable with the flames and our ability to react and and stamp it out the bigger the pile of needles became and the leaves would get and then one of my friends would, or my brother or I, would have a suggestion of something else we could throw in, Uh, whether it was paper or uh, someone's homework or, you know, graded papers from our book bags, just drop it on there uh, to where the fire would get bigger and bigger. And one afternoon, my friends and I were skateboarding in our street when we saw across the neighborhood plumes of dark black smoke rising in the distance. Uh, We had never seen smoke that dark before we were used to the little gray gray smoke that was coming out of our pile of needles. So we grabbed our boards and started running through the neighborhoods, uh, through the neighbor's yards, don't do that, but we did, closer and closer to this plume. And the smoke was coming from an adjacent neighborhood uh, that uh, my, yeah, anyway, my friends grew up in. We turned down a familiar street that many of us had been down before to see a two-story house completely engulfed in flames. It was a raging fire, it was the biggest fire that my buddies and I had ever seen. There were fire trucks everywhere, ambulances, people standing outside, neighbors uh, crying. And once we started kind of understanding where we were, we realized that it was my schoolmate, uh, my friend David's house. His sister Jennifer and I were in the same fifth grade class that year. and We just earlier that week had a good laugh at school and all of us were wondering, are they okay? Are they in there, did they get out? Uh, And the fire department, before we could get any of those answers, started shooing us away, especially us, like, where are your parents? And we're like, oh, we're from over there. And they're like, go home. We're like, okay. Uh, So we all kind of walked home kind of with that ghostly look on our face. Like, we don't know what happened. We don't know how that started. We don't know if our friends are okay. And uh, we wouldn't hear until we saw them at school a few days later. And we saw Jennifer and David That week, and our school had organized the clothing and food drive for them because they lost absolutely everything. And as we were in the hallways, one of my buddies mustered up the courage. Because you don't want to ask someone that's gone through a tragedy right away like, what happened? Uh, But one of my buddies asked David, what happened? And David kind of looked down. And if there was a stick on the hallway floor, he would have kicked it or a stone. But he looked down. He said, I was messing around with matches in my room when I accidentally caught my my curtains on fire. So he was actually off the side of his bed, he said lighting matches and throwing them down and then stomping them out, throwing them out and stomping them out. And this time he threw it and I guess he had some type of nylon curtain or whatever like that and the curtains went up and it was too late. And both curtains went up as he described and he said I just ran. He was the only one home. Everybody was at work and his sister was out at a friend's house. So David was home. Uh, lighting matches and completely caught his house on fire and they lost everything. All my friends looked around instantly because we were fire starters too. We were the match kid kings too. Like, hey, you know, we we do that. And some of us vowed to take David's mistake to heart. Like, we're, we're, we're done, man. No more, no more leaf piles, no more uh, pine needle matches. None of us we uh, were messing around with matches when we were born or killed the time. When temptation came, I remember my friend saying, Yo, remember what happened to David? <laughs> and we would say, Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And we never uh, lit matches uh, for a couple years. That was fifth grade, and in seventh grade, uh, we traded our matches in for cigarettes. And I've told this story before, but my brother and I, and my friend Aaron, who was also a match, a match kid, uh, were down by a cul-de-sac, or down by a, a creek or a, a canal uh, smoking, and my brother uh, was lighting the uh, our, old, our old good time pine needles on fire. Uh, but this time, we were in a bed of pine needles. So it wasn't a bundle, it was a, a bed of them. It was everywhere. And those pine needles caught fire and caught weeds on fire and caught a fence on fire and caught a pine tree on fire and caught a whole grove of pine trees on fire in a matter of minutes. He ran, everyone ran, we all ran. And that was our wake up call, so to speak, of the quickness and the damage and the ferocity of fire. I told you this before, but that was two years and we were in fire class looking at the consequences of fire for an entire week looking at children, parents, dead and alive of those who had been burned. The firefighters, ironically, the same firefighters that put out my friend's fire a a few years earlier, were the ones with all their energy, kind of if they could put hands on us, they would have, just imploring us, quit messing around (laughs) with fire. You just don't know how terrible this can be. Just wake up. A small thing can become a catastrophic thing in a moment. First Corinthians 10, that's not our text today, but it highlights how the Old Testament is meant to be a trendsetter for us, in the sense that it's meant to share with us that the mistakes and the examples of the past are meant to teach us now. First Corinthians 1011 says these things happened. As examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul, in that letter, was referencing all the things that happened to God's people in the wilderness as examples for them to heed, to pay attention to, so that they would not go the same route. All right? And all of us can think at this time of things we've seen that others had done and say, Ooh, I'm. I'm not doing that. Those are the best mistakes, the ones you don't make, the ones you can learn from, somebody else makes and said, okay, I I know what happens when they do that. Unfortunately, we also have seen other people make mistakes, vowed to not do them ourselves, and we find ourselves right there doing the same thing. So none of us are greater than the other here. Uh, David burned his house down, I burned a fence down, and a whole bunch of trees down, maybe you've done something Uh, maybe not with fire, but with words, or with a lack of forgiveness, or something to burn things down, even though we know the consequence remains. In Ezekiel 34, uh, we don't know much about Ezekiel as a church here, but I'll tell you a little bit. He was the contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the one we looked at last week in regards to his good shepherding and the prophecy of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Ezekiel was taken captive in 589 B.C., And he was part of the first wave of those taken to Babylon. If you're familiar with Daniel and him being taken to Babylon, it's what we're all talking about here. Ezekiel's on that trek as well. Ezekiel was in Babylon where only a handful of years later, three to be exact, a second revolt happened in Jerusalem, which led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem, which Ezekiel, for 33 chapters and some, had been prophesying what was going to happen. So God's people had been hearing for quite some time from Ezekiel, both in captivity and before captivity, that the consequences of their sin, them turning away from God, was going to have to be the destruction of their land to wake them up. That they refused to repent, they refused to to leave idolatry in the past. The shepherds, the elders of Jerusalem, were actually worshiping false gods in the very temple of God. There's a text earlier where uh, if you If you know your history, the temples were actually pointed uh, to the east to the sun rising, and it says the elders were bowed down facing the west with their backs towards the altar. This is an imagery that they had literally turned their backs on God and were worshiping other gods, the gods of actually the the sun rising the hot the heat of the sun rising in the west, that they were using the sun as the one who provides all of their power and their source of sustenance so a literal we're turning our back on God who provides and now we're, we're replacing him with the Sun in the powerful the powerful rays we feel on our skin as those as the one who provides and takes care of us and Ezekiel saw that and God prof, told him to prophesy the impending destruction on Jerusalem and here in chapter 34 as has been the pattern God references the failings of leadership, and he also references the failure of God's people collectively. And we'll look at that again today. So this is kind of good news, kind of wake up call. Kind of, I just saw David's house burning and I need to heed the lesson or else I'm gonna make the same, same mistake. So this morning really is uh, in some ways half, uh, I pray a sobriety of the reality of when we decide not to take God's word seriously and the hope we can have knowing that God comes through, even though we can be in a cycle of learning and making mistakes, learning and making mistakes. Amen? So Ezekiel 34, and we'll break this up a bit. This is towards the leaders. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherd of Israel, prophesy and say to them, And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. What we see here early on is with the leadership, which we've talked about. The leadership of Israel, shepherds, pastors, elders, those who were entrusted with God's people to lead them to the ways of righteousness. And what we see here is a a reality that there were shepherds, but who they cared for was themselves. And we see the breakdown of Ezekiel, and how do we know these shepherds took care of themselves, is everything that the sheep provided was for their sustenance. There was no sacrifice. They were fattening themselves literally on the church, on the flock. That the leaders took care of themselves, and they saw them... Helpless and without a shepherd, but let them do just as they wanted. This is the reality of what can happen in leadership, is that you see here there's two extremes. Verse 4 talks about those two extremes. You have not strengthened. You have not taken care of. You have not sought out the lost. You've completely been neglectful. And at the end of chapter, or verse 4, it says you have ruled them harshly and brutally. There's two polar, there's two ends of the spectrum there that the leadership is either completely out to lunch and everyone does what they want to their own dismay, or they're being ruled harshly or brutally, meaning they're so on top of them that they're choking them out. I think all of us can experience or have experienced both ends of those spectrums. When it comes to those who have been in leadership or you yourself as as a shepherd, that we can go from one end of the spectrum. Even in my own parenting, I can be permissive, And then when I start to see this is not good, then I step up my game and it becomes harsh. And it's like, whoa, where did this come from? You were just the the nice guy, cool cop, and now you're the bad cop. This is confusing. I think you can look to your own parenting that maybe it's in a week or it's in a month or in years where you were the heavy-handed parents and then you're like, oh, no, no, no. Now they're teens. I can't tell them what to do. They're revolting. They're rebelling. They're threatening to leave. All right we'll be cool we'll just be buds and then you become permissive and they go do what they want that's a that's a real temptation bring that uh, that example from parenting just into our one other relationships it's easy as someone who's mentoring or someone who's older you're looking at others and you're you know what happens when you stray from god so you're all over the younger generation to make sure they don't do that but it becomes heavy-handed They don't don't learn the whys, they just learn the whats. Here's what you're to do. Do this, don't do that. And our leadership has been that way in the past. Our discipling relationships have been that way in the past. We're just, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and it's heavy handed. But I fear the spectrum shifts, and we don't find synthesis. We shift the other way, and we become people who see what's happening, but don't get involved where we're neglectful or i'm neglectful you know as a person as a leader there's been times where i said this last week there's been times where i should have listened and instead i offered a rebuke when i should have been gentle and provided vision and encouragement i provided to do's and to don'ts that was limited in short-term short-term thinking where people left with more of a burden rather than understanding who Jesus is. There's been times where it's been, man, Jesus is awesome and grace and grace when a stiff challenge needed to happen. And I find myself in that, just that lostness sometimes of what's the right way to do this? How do you really shepherd well? I don't wanna be harsh, I don't wanna be brutal and I don't wanna be permissive and see things in my own life and in God's church just go astray, but I've seen both. And it's, it's times, and I'm sure you've felt that way before, where it's like, man, is there any, is there any really good shepherds? Is there anyone that's actually really good at this? Who is really good at having grace and truth? Who's got the perfect blend of stiff challenge where it needs to, but then also grace and vision? Who is that guy? Where is that girl? Who is she? And we know the answer to all that. But I think what's happening here. And what's been dangerous, even as we've studied the good shepherd, is that Psalm 23, this is a recap, Psalm 23, Jeremiah 23, and Ezekiel 34, they all have the same big idea. Here it is. You ready? We go astray. Leaders try to lead, and they lead in the wrong ways. Sheep try to follow, and sheep also rebel. We all lack the ability to truly be good shepherds. So God sends a good shepherd in Jesus. And that good shepherd does everything we can't do. And we love him for it. That's the big idea over and over and over again. But the danger is what? You've heard this love song before. You've heard this before. I've heard this before. I can't shepherd well, thank God we have Jesus. You can't shepherd well, thank God we have Jesus. I can't follow very well sometimes, thank God we have Jesus. You can't follow very well, thank God we have Jesus. And the danger is that this love song becomes just that, a familiar tune, but it loses its intended impact. That fire that day woke me up and it lasted for a little bit until I felt comfortable with those same mistakes, and I thought to myself, that's not as bad as David's house. (laughs) Even in the midst of that seventh grade story where we were still in the same school and I saw him and word got out about what me and my buddies did and what fire we created. There was still this kind of sizing up like, well, I didn't burn my house down, I just burned somebody else's fence down. It's not as bad. And there was grace and there was understanding and there was, you know, don't do that, you little seventh grader know the consequences of fire, and we kind of go on and on. The leadership here got comfortable with hearing the message and not responding. How do we know this? Just look a little bit earlier in, in Ezekiel 33, if you will. Verse 30 of just chapter before. It says, as for you, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, Your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the door of the houses saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them." This isn't to put myself in Ezekiel's shoes that you guys aren't listening to my lessons. This, we're all in this together. This is not a, I'm up here, get with the program. This is me and you. This is all of us, and I'm sobered by that, that there's an excitement. To hear the word of God. There's an excitement to hear Ezekiel prophesy about what's coming. And Ezekiel's message up to this point was not one filled with hope. He was, not, he was not actually lessening the blow of what was going on. He was not whitewashing the present. He was calling out leadership. He was calling out the people of God heavy, like heavy, heavy. Like destruction is going to happen because you won't wake up and turn. It's coming because of you. Like, those are heavy words. And yet there was this excitement to hear it. But then here's what God says about Ezekiel's message. They love hearing it. It's a nice song. You're really well, you're really great at doing that. You're like a, you're a great musician. You put together those, those sermons really, really well. I really enjoy them. And then you walk away, and you don't do anything with it. And I thought, oh my gosh. How many times have I heard great truth? Great truth presented well. Great truth presented well in a podcast or my own readings, whatever it may be. Again, I'm not putting myself in this position, that you heard a well, eloquent lesson all put together, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. You have heard the word of God once before in your life, yes? That's enough for us to respond. That's enough for us to wake up. Seeing that house on fire should have been enough for me to get it, but over time, it faded. Over time, it became something, I won't do it that bad. And I think for us, back to First Corinthians 10, these examples of a whole people being sent to Babylon is meant to be for us a wake-up call example for how bad things get when God's people don't respond to his word. The slippery slope. You say, oh, well, who's coming to get us from our land and take us somewhere? What kind of slavery is waiting for us? Is there a king that's gonna come and take out the US of A? That's not the message. We know the enemy. We know what's coming that wants to take us out. We know the one who is far greater than any missile launched over, far greater than any naval vessel on your shores. The very enemy that wants to take you out is the very thing that starts small, like a small clump of pine needles in your heart, equivalent to a lustful look that turns into, again, let's not think we're above this, a lustful look now, a laugh at a joke at work tomorrow turns into romantic interest in a year. That can turn out into a full-blown affair in five. You're not above that. I'm not above that. Last time I checked, I like when people laugh at my jokes. You like it when someone compliments you. These are these are fine things, but a small kindle goes unchecked. It could turn out in your worst nightmare. People don't get addicted to drugs and pornography from just one glance. It becomes a coping mechanism. It becomes something that that shapes, reshapes medically their mind. And it becomes something dependent. Again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But these are things we've got to talk about as a fellowship, as a family, to recognize that we hear the word of God a lot. We have more access to God's word than we ever have before. And I myself have become comfortable with a lesser standard of what it means to follow God. That there's something about where I am now spiritually that only a handful of years ago, I would have been like, man, that's lukewarm. Times where I've read, times where I've put into practice just enough to not feel guilty. But if I look at passages as to what it really means to have God be my shepherd, there are areas of my life where I don't let him shepherd me. There are areas in my life where I don't want his rod and staff to comfort me. I've got other things to comfort me. I've got sports to comfort me. I've got Netflix to comfort me. I've got just stewing in my own self-pity to comfort me. I've got the comparison game where I'm doing enough, where's everybody else to keep me company? You have something too. You know, the times in my life where I find myself today is going on a prayer walk in the morning just to have kind of God's blessings to send me through the rest of the day. But if God were truly shepherding me, I'd see him in my need for him all day long. Where I'd be reflecting and yearning and desiring his presence. I've got some friends from uh, our soccer team here and uh, I've gotta confess, uh, being i I've said this before, right? Being a soccer dad and someone who's played soccer a lot in my life and uh, someone who can be that dad thinking you know, you're living vicariously through your own 13-year-old and uh, get them boy and uh, win that tournament because you didn't win many. There's been times where my sinful nature has been on full display. Like I'm ashamed that I'm yelling at the top of my lungs at a 40-year-old man in a yellow shirt that's getting paid a referee a game that has no bearing on my life. And in all honesty, has very little bearing on the, on the men and the young men that are playing that game. But for some reason, I feel so inclined to yell, ref, what are you doing? And here my friends are, and they know I'm a minister. And it's not because I'm a minister that I shouldn't say that. But, it's, but it, gives me, it gave me great pause. Like, I'm not here just to set an example. I'm here to be shepherded by God. And I'm not letting my heart be shepherd, shepherded even in these quote-unquote silly moments. And I had to pull a couple of the dads aside, and, and both of us, uh, two of us were like, yeah, we kind of let it go there. That wasn't good. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's, I don't know what's happening to me. I need to really wake up. And it's the little things. I'm like, oh, come on, man. Get, come on, ref. I've heard worse. Yeah, probably. But in my heart, I wanted to say a lot of other things. And they won that game, too, which is ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> what am I saying here is that this was a slippery slope for me. Because two weeks ago, I was yelling at that ref. But years ago, I was saying stuff under my breath. When Cameron first started soccer, I would say things in my heart, like, man, this coach doesn't know what he's doing. I would say things to other, other, uh, you know, my wife in the car on the way home, never outside. But then fast forward, now I have very little restraint, and I haven't asked the question yet, of my my friend, my, my son's uh, teammates' parents, like, what do, you, what am I what am I showing you? And I think the answer would be, you don't look any different than anybody else, and maybe there would be some charity there, of saying, hey man, it's all good, we all kind of. But I want to hold myself to a higher standard because God is my good shepherd. I share all that as someone who God has called to shepherd and be concerned and to care and to sacrifice and to imitate Jesus as someone who looks for the comfort of others rather than their own comforting. Not a neglectful comforting because I can't pour out what's not filled in, but there's a high calling here that I want to heed that God, as I've said a couple Sundays ago, God takes shepherding seriously and not bounding up the injured, not pursuing the lost in our community, not going after those who have walked away from our fellowship with a desire to see God work is neglect. And there have been plenty of times where I've chosen my comfort, my time, my schedule over being interrupted by God and his Holy Spirit to do the very thing God's called me to be. There are folks that there's a category, there's a, you know one of those Rolodex of names that come across my mind when I read verse 4. You have not strengthened the weak. There are weak here in the RVC. There always will be. And I'm not the savior, but I am called to help point them to him. And I think you too know that there are weak among us. And instead of pursuing them, we said, ah, I got to take care of my own that we feasted on the fellowship and knowing that others aren't, and we take take to heart what we get out of it and say, oh, well, they'll be fine. Again, there's plenty of applications here for us. You know, God does tell us in verse 7 through verse 10 that he's going to come and hold those shepherds accountable. God will hold me accountable. God will not let his church fail because of wishy-washy leadership. God will always, always protect his church. In verse 11, we have the answer. Verse 11, is this what God says? Okay, we've got leadership, and we've got sheep doing their own thing. I've got something to do here, and praise God for it. Verse 11, it says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and all the settlements in the land. I will tell them and I will tend them in good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and I'll have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I love this, verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. God says, I myself, I'm coming down. I'm gonna come down and take care of the sheep. I'm not gonna let them stray. I myself will come. The truth here is that we have a shepherd king. A shepherd king, a king who rules but comes to shepherd. There's not many leaders like that. There's not many leaders that, that take off the kingly crown and willing to empty themselves and be a shepherd. But we have one in Jesus. That's who this prophecy is all about. It's about David and the servant David. He will rise up, but it's about Jesus who will be our good shepherd. The very one who will come down in clouds into the darkness and rescue us. Bring us from a lowly place to a good pasture. Bring us from the lowly fire pits of our own destruction to the mountaintops of Israel. God will search for the lost and bring back the strays. Jesus will look for those who are injured and will bind them up. He will strengthen those who are weak. But this challenge is for me, and I extend it to you as well, if the shoe fits, but the sleek, but the strong will be destroyed. What's God saying here? Those who have taken care of themselves will be taken care of with justice. Those who have taken care of themselves in the midst of others not being taken care of will get what's coming to them. If you think about Lazarus in the story of Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus was the, was the man who was at the gate called Beautiful. And every day the religious ruler walked by him and he was asking for things, asking for things. And he never took care of this man who was bound and broken and enslaved. And one day... That rich ruler died. And he saw that Lazarus was now up at the bosom of Abraham. And now he's begging for just a little bit of water to be put on his tongue. You know what Jesus tells him? In your day, you had everything, and he had nothing. And now he's going to have everything, and you have nothing. You had everything you needed in this life, and that was good enough for you. And you ignore those who had nothing you tended to yourself and you neglected other people this is so challenging because we have everything in our culture that reinforces take care of yourself find your own truth and live by it don't let anybody tell you don't depend on anyone don't submit yourself to any type of church authority or relationships just keeping my arms distance and what does that do it creates a church that does not embrace god's authority and because of that we don't stay close and we don't take care of each other we assume you don't want to be taken care of we assume that you don't need anything but we do don't we and we would be stuck in that cycle if it wasn't for our Good Shepherd who says, you know what, I've seen enough, I'm coming down myself. I'm coming down myself to search for them, to look for them, to bring them back. Bring them back is the word in Hebrew, shuv, which means to repent, which means to turn away from sin and come back to God. It's not an epiphany like, oh, okay, I think I'm gonna come back and kind of do things God's way. It's a, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I've been doing these things, I don't wanna live this way anymore, I'm going to submit myself to the Shepherd King. And I think for me, there's areas of my life when it comes to compassion, compassion for the lost world around me, compassion for my own community, where honestly I've gotten fat on my own decisions to just do what I think I want to do to help my community. But there are so many other things that God's been putting on my heart that I have stuffed down, say, so you know what? That stretches me a little bit too much. For my comfort I don't think that's what I want to do with my time I've I've decided these are some good outlets in my ministry and I've ignored some of the bigger issues that are gonna stretch me more and I want to repent there's discipleship and the standard of discipleship where discipleship means that Jesus is Lord that we submit ourselves to the Shepherd King in all areas in our purity in our language In our hearts, in our minds, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, we learn from the shepherd. And I have seen myself, not as a person who needs to be shepherded at all times, but only in the times my my own autonomy, I say, okay, I need a shepherd here because it's getting pretty tough. My kids are getting older. I really don't know what to do. Okay, I need a shepherd there. Okay, the church might be doing this or not. Okay, God, I need your help there. But there's so many areas in my life that say, no, I I got this. But if I look at the biblical text, a sheep without a shepherd is dead. And that's uncomfortable for me because I like to think I could take care of myself. There are areas where I'm good enough, strong enough, able enough, wise enough. But the Bible says otherwise. I'm a sheep and without a shepherd, I'm dead. I wanna be shepherded by God. And I know there's gonna be discipline. There's gonna be care. There's gonna be stern talks. There's gonna be encouragement. There's gonna be blessings. There's gonna be freedom. There's gonna be exposure. All that's coming if we wanna be shepherded by a loving, loving shepherd that comes and says, I will bind you up. I will strengthen you. You know, the truth is in the shepherding culture, in the shepherding community, verse 16, to a sheep does not look like love all the time. When you're a sheep and you run away, you know what the shepherd has to do? Sheep aren't like, yay, you found me. They're not that way. They're not like, woohoo, I was bundled up under this, under this bush, quaking in fear, and now you're here. Yahoo, I'm out and I'm running about, yay, like a little puppy that's lost coming back to their master. No, 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 no. Sheep are scared. They don't want to be touched when they're scared. They don't want to be touched at all. The shepherd has to pounce on them, hold them down, tie their feet, put them on his shoulders, and then take them back home, quaking in fear, and they don't know that they've actually been saved until they're back in the fold. It's the phrase, you're taking me here, kicking, and what? Screaming that the sheep don't know what's happening to them is good. It doesn't feel like love to have your hands bound together for your own good. Now, I'm not advocating any of that but what i am saying it speaks to my heart it speaks to my heart that i don't like that kind of shepherding but i need it and ezekiel provided that kind of shepherding for god's people and in one moment they say yeah that sounds awesome but then they don't do anything about it well that sounds scary i'm out of here i'm doing my own thing and i think you and i are different We can sit, we can come to church, we can sing the songs, and we love it. And we heed the warning, but then we go and we say, hey, what'd you think? Oh, church was great, awesome to be together. And that's where it stops. And I'm convicted by that. I stand in the front of the line. I'm doing the message. If there's anyone guilty of not taking God's word seriously, right here. I get to study this out all week? How much more for me? But we're all in this together. And praise God, as we transition to take that bread and that juice that represents God's body pierced and his blood spilled for us, this was the way that Ezekiel was pointing to. This is how the good shepherd, the king, is gonna bring us back. This is the only chance we have to be motivated and inspired to truly change. This is the only fire, dark smoke, get your attention moment that's really going to be able to do enough to stop us in our tracks, to look at each other with ghostly pale faces and say, I'm not messing with matches anymore. It's the only thing. If a literal house fire burning down right in front of me couldn't keep me from messing around with matches. The message of the cross is there's not enough words, songs, truth that can pierce these folks' folks hearts enough to actually motivate them to change. I got to do more. And it's his very son that has to be killed in the most brutal way in history to even just give us a chance to wake up. A chance to realize, oh man, I need a shepherd. And for those of us who have realized we need a shepherd, let's look at our lives and say, what area, what area of my life, just one, because more than one right now, could be overwhelming. But if you want to do more than one, great. But what one area of my life do I want to return to have him shepherd me again? Maybe it is your internet history. Maybe it is the dynamics in your family. Maybe it is your personal evangelism and compassion to a community around you. Maybe it is using the blessings you've been given to not have the blessing stop there, but to turn and be a blessing. Yeah, I'm talking about your house now. Talking about your house. Talking about your dinner table. Talking about your groceries. I'm talking about your time. These things are hard for me to let go of. Groceries are expensive, fam. Making dinner for folks, that's a cost you got to literally count now. But there's been times when we're pretty tight. Hospitality can wait. Well, okay. Just opportunities for me to trust in the shepherd and return to the way he would want me to live. So what's one area you want God to return to have him shepherd your life? And some of us out there need a return to the shepherd altogether where we've been kicking and moaning and hiding under a bush for too long and he's come to find you. And you gotta say, okay, I gotta be honest about where I've really been. I gotta be real about my heart and that does not feel like love. Why do you want me to talk about this? But I need to so that you can bring me back to the fold. And there's those moments that await you say, oh man, He had a plan, and he brought me back to the best place ever. We have a God who says to us in verse 30, all that's going to happen, he's going to bring you back, and then they will know that I am the Lord their God, and they are my people. Let communion be a wake-up call for us that God, through his son, told us through the most gruesome death and most glorious resurrection that they'll know now that I am their good shepherd king. They will know that I am their God and they are my people. Let's reflect as a family and where we want God to shepherd us again and let us rejoice in our God who came down and said, this is how they're going to know that I'm their king, I'm their God, and they are my people. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, God, we come before you. God, I'm humbled by your kindness. That every Sunday, every day, we have an opportunity to hear the gospel, to re- be reminded of your grace and your kindness, that in no greater ways has been expressed through the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son. That he came down, not just uh, in theory, not just in some cool metaphor, but in actual historical death and resurrection for our sins. That he had to show us, you had to show us, how serious you take sin, and how serious you love us, and that's the way you chose to do it. God, help that to shake us to the core, to help us to see where we've strayed, but then know at the other other side of the coin, you are a king, you are a shepherd who loved to come down and rescue us, to take us from the fire pit and bring us to the highest mountains, to have us to lie down in pastures, to be completely taken care of. That's who you are. God, help your kindness now to help us as a family collectively to take the gospel and to respond to it, to let you be our shepherd once again in all areas, for let to let you be the king that you are in our lives. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace that pierces deep and prayerfully compels us to no longer live for ourselves, but for you. We love you. Bless this time. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. Be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here. Subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.